Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I mean, I may be a thief, but I'm not an embezzler, you know? And that guy shot himself. If you think the chickens can fly, we better go to Wikipedia right away. Oh my God, you have the internet. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Coming up, NPR's Audie Cornish talks about what she will and will not nerd out about. And we continue our conversation with author M.T. Anderson and Nerdette contributor Megan Murphy-Gill about the ways technology is changing how we talk and how we think. Plus, a healthy dose of homework. Okay, Trisha, we really got to talk about Orange is the New Black. But first, I want you to tell our listeners where you are right now. My happy place. I need you to be a little more specific. I'm on the campus of Michigan State University at the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association High School Summer Journalism Workshop. I've been here every year as a student, TA, or instructor of some kind since I was about 15 years old. Journalism nerd! And proud of it. I'm here with about 400 other journalism nerds. The teachers are amazing, and it's an incredible week for anyone who wants to learn more about storytelling. There are photo classes, design classes, video classes, writing classes, and I think it's so important for kids to learn about journalism, even if they don't do it professionally. I believe the children are, are you mocking me with Whitney Houston, Greta? Yes, and also I still need you to be more specific. Like, where exactly are you right now? Inside the closet of a dorm room under a lot of blankets podcasting, man. It is the most glamorous business. Hobo journalism, y'all. So let's talk about our new favorite thing. It's the new Netflix original series from Weeds creator Genji Kohan, Orange is the New Black. So you've watched it now, Greta? Yes. Not all of it yet, but yes. Yeah, I binge watched this show. I know others who are being more responsible, like WBEZ's business reporter, Susie Ann. I keep hearing people talk about, you know, going on these Orange is the New Black marathons and TV binges, and I'm trying so hard not to do that. You know, I I try to limit myself to maybe two episodes max a night, and what I'm really trying to do is tide myself over until Breaking Bad starts again in August, and my biggest wish is, okay, so I still have a few episodes to go on Orange, And then once that's over, boom, Breaking Bad starts. Then I watch the whole season of Breaking Bad. And then after that, my wish is that Orange is the New Black will be ready with their second season. So the wait won't be long, and I'll have, like, a magical TV experience in a perfect TV world. So, yeah, I love the show, and uh, I love you guys, and that's all I have to say. Thanks. Yeah, I'm kind of at that point in obsession where anything I do that isn't watching Orange is the New Black feels like a waste of my time. (laughs) So we need to hurry this up so I can get back to business. I completely understand and respect where your priorities are right now. Also, I may be running out of oxygen under this blanket. So let's dig (laughs) in. 
Yeah, it's funny because I was pretty concerned I would disagree with the rest of the world on this one, but I can say now everyone really is correct and Orange is the New Black is beautiful. Definitely. I get your hesitation, though. A show about an artisanal bath product making white lady from the burbs going to prison could be terrible. Right. Especially since when I heard it's Genji Kohan, I was worried it would be just another Wheats. Oh, see, when I heard it was her project, I knew we were in good hands. You broke up with Weeds a few seasons back, though, right? I did. You know, a friend of mine put it really well when she said she stopped watching because the show, which used to be about Nancy selling weed, suddenly became a show about Nancy and her vagina. And it just, (laughs) I I wasn't interested anymore. Uh, I hear you, but I stuck it out with Weeds. And this new show has the same sense of humor, which I love, but more emotional realism, which I did sometimes crave from Weeds. Yeah, Orange is the New Black is just so much more nuanced than Weeds. It's about the main character, Piper, actually growing as a human being. Right, not just chewing on the straw of her iced coffee as the world implodes like Nancy Botwin does. And it's about the fact that most people in prison are really there because of a bizarre set of circumstances. I love that we get a glimpse inside the lives of these other women. It's not suburban white lady versus scary prison ladies. It really respects all its characters. Yes, and it's not like it's perfect. It introduces its characters in a pretty polished narrative format with all the prison cliches. Right, and sometimes it's even campy in a fun way. But the thing you said about Piper, the main character versus the prison ladies, I think it's important because it's just one example of how the show rejects the easy route of presenting the world in really strict good or bad dichotomies. No one is good or bad. Right. Sometimes they did bad things, but often there's more to it than that. They made a bad choice once. They had the best of intentions. They got caught up with complicated family stuff. I love that it breaks down the this or that mentality about sexuality, too. There are lesbians, bisexuals, straight women. And they're all ages, shapes, races, and religion. You just know that these female character actors are having a great time. There's one thing that struck me, though. Do they ever say the word bisexual? Maybe it's just because Dan Savage made me really hypersensitive about the bisexual invisibility problem. Bisexuals are definitely not invisible in Orange is the Black. (laughs) They are very, very visible. Okay, yes, that's true. And I guess we can just be grateful that the show's take on human sexuality doesn't shy away from showing things that don't fit in that binary. And it shows those things can be difficult for people to navigate personally and with their families. Right. I like that it's realistic about how weirded out and confused people can be about it all, and that sometimes that happens in a really ugly, hateful way. The show format is also really appealing. There's the story of what's happening with Piper in prison, but each episode also deals with the woman who Piper is interacting with, telling the story of how they ended up there. Yeah, I often hate flashbacks, but these, well, most of these, work really well. Sometimes I just think, oh no... We're back in Russia with the bad wigs again. (laughs) But all the flashbacks provide some background on each inmate, making them more relatable and helping advance the story. True. Never a dull moment in a woman's prison, at least not on Netflix. They packed a lot into this first season. Oh, man, I really want to know what happens next. Can we stop talking about it so I can go watch the rest of the episodes? Okay, okay. All right. So we asked NPR's Audie Cornish what she thinks about the new Netflix show last week, because we see her tweet often about the pop culture she nerds out about. You'll hear more from Audie in an upcoming episode, but we thought you should know that she is resisting the Orange is the New Black bandwagon. And I am doing my utmost to convince her of otherwise. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do it. Really? I'm Yeah, I'm going to go on the record in public and be a contrarian. I am still a very disappointed Weeds watcher. Oh, I hated Weeds. Yeah, I loved Weeds the first one or two seasons. Yeah, yeah. 
despite what I viewed as fairly problematic uh, black characterizations, I went along Fair. with it because I'm a team player and, you know, we're in a post-racial society. It's all irony all the time. There you go. And then the last five seasons were just like, horrendous. And of course, I'm a bitter ender, right? So I'm on Netflix like, they went to Amsterdam, cool. I'll watch it. You know, like I'm just watching <laughs> and watching. But it totally poisoned me. Like when this other thing came up, I was like, uh, another suburban lady out of her element. Like, I just don't want to go there. So I am I'm holding back, even though everyone else loves it. You sound cheerful. Are you enjoying it so far? I am enjoying it very much. And to be honest, I was contrarian to my initial reaction was like, no, it's not going to be good. But it's much better than weeds. She's a much more well-developed, shallow person who kind of grows into herself. And I should say, I'm sitting here like with my nose in the air, like I'm not going to watch that show. (laughs) Of course you are. That's what the critics say. Meanwhile, I'm totally watching Mistresses on ABC, which is the scandal replacement and a remake of a UK show, which, yes, I watched all three seasons of. And it is totally like it's not a good show at all. (laughs) I should be watching Orange is the New Black. I think you'd like it. I feel like it's really thoughtful. And like even just the storytelling technique, I think, is really fascinating and well done. Well, then I won't be a total lazy bones. I mean, it's just sitting there on Netflix, staring me in the face at the what's new section every time. I mean, I admire your abstinence. I do. And I I almost would have been there, too. But but they're all right. You know, this is what my friend Liz told me about Harry Potter. She's like, everybody likes it for a reason, Greta. Oh, I don't, I haven't read a one. (laughs) It's now become a point of pride. Okay, quick story. So I'm doing an interview with Questlove of the Roots. Arguably (laughs) the coolest person on the planet, right? Just factually at this point. The guy walks in the room and people are like, whoa, your afro's amazing. I love your music. TV's great. You're so cool. Like, he is cool. Right. But he also is a nice guy and is, you know, totally game to talk. And I'm I'm not a person who pretends that the people I interview I've become friends with. I talked to them for 20 minutes once and they couldn't see me, right? <laughs> so halfway through this interview, at some point, I'm asking him about his early days and the band and why he thinks the band is stuck together for so long, why the roots have survived. And he's like, two tour buses, ha ha ha. And then he, like, rattles off two names of the tour buses And I have no idea what he's talking about. And these are names from Harry Potter. And I have so little idea (laughs) about what he's talking about. I'm literally like, what? What's that? Is that Game of Thrones or something? I'm like, is that Dungeons and Dragons? Like... And he's like, what is wrong with you? Like, It's Harry Potter. Why don't you know this? And I was mortified because I was like, you know, here I am thinking, I'm the nerd. At NPR, interviewing, you know, you, hip-hop dude with your hippity-hop, and uh, he just totally dropped knowledge on me about Harry Potter, and I failed the test. That was a huge nerd fail. So your reaction is not to feel instant remorse and go research and read the <laughs> of books. Of course It's not. to the just disown done. them entirely. The damage is done. I mean, really, why bother now? I don't know. <laughs> I just don't get it. That's hilarious. But like you said, everyone loves them for a reason. Right. Thanks to Adi for nerding out with us. I'm always a little flustered by people who haven't read Harry Potter. Give me a minute here. I still love you, Adi. I do. 
Okay, while you compose yourself, Trisha, let's jump back into our conversation with author M.T. Anderson. Radio nerds, bear with us through this phone tape, okay? If you like, you can think of it as a form of commentary on the way we demand that all technology interact with us seamlessly and stuff like that. Feed came out way back in 2002, and it predicts technology that we have now so astoundingly well and where it seems like we might be heading. Are you maybe a wizard or time traveler of some sort? I only wish. You know, I would definitely, I think, go backwards rather than forward if I were a time traveler, but I would make sure to get the appropriate inoculations first. I know you wrote in the epilogue kind of about the presence of advertising in your life, and you were even dreaming in advertising. Did you ever expect this targeted advertising to become just as good as it is now? I'm just thinking about how I was looking at a book on Amazon the other day, and I didn't get it, but Amazon keeps reminding me that I was looking at this book. I know, right. Yes, I did actually feel that advertising was going to become more intense. The surprise to me is actually more on the technological front. That is to say, when I wrote the book, I really thought of the feed as almost uh, a symbolic thing because I felt, as I said, that already in my head there was the presence of advertising. I mean, it was already installed in me, even though there was not a device to deliver it. But the thing that surprised me is, in fact, uh, over the 10 years, is how quickly we've moved towards having technologies that resemble the feed. And, uh, you know, things that I just thought of as a science fiction symbol instead has turned out to be something which could be a reality within a decade or two. For example, Intel a few years ago announced that they wanted to have chips available for consumers' heads by 2020. Wow. I don't know how they're doing with that, but that was their idea. What's really remarkable, thinking about tech and how much it's developed in the last 10 or so years, is the fact that now, more than ever, young people are growing up in a world where they know nothing other than tech. Is that a, a particular goal of yours, to make sure that you know conscious consumption is a possibility? Absolutely. And I think that all of us really need reminding of it. It's not simply the young, because people even my age have been living surrounded by advertising of a very intense kind that was not actually the case for my parents or my grandparents' generation. We're so plugged in all the time that we have to make a conscious effort to unplug, to not check the notification on the cell phone, to not worry about if anyone has liked your pictures on Instagram that day. (laughs) Right. I just think of my brother as 19, and he took a class in his first year of college, and they asked him to basically unplug for three days, and he found it impossible. Whereas I think of that, I'm like, I can go on a vacation for three days and not check my email, not check my phone. I can do it no problem. Can we opt out of that technology, though, in a real way without having to opt out of a social life and the job market? Are they so intertwined now that those things can only be a temporary sabbatical? Right. And even though there are occasionally irritations with that, at the same time, it seems almost restful in some ways. Exactly. There are, in fact, neuroscientists who are writing about ways in which we are slightly being rewired by the media that we use. Mm -hmm. You know, even as we produce new media and rewire it, it is rewiring us. We have a conversation often in journalism about making sure that the things that we write are search engine optimized. Does it have good SEO? Which is basically asking the human to write the way people type into search engines, make sure those keywords are there. So instead of writing a sentence that makes sense to us as we would converse, it's make sure the key terms that Google would return results for are included in the right way and in the right order. Doesn't that just mean you end up having to write like uh, kittens with dildo in every article? (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. Hashtag Justin Bieber at the end of every, you know. Exactly. <laughs> it seems like language used in social media is a new set of punctuation is being formed. Yeah. So using the hashtag almost as a way to indicate some form of sarcasm to say the right. word slash in a sentence instead of this or that. It's this slash that we've now started articulating right. in speech the punctuation that we use and as a isn't shorthand. That, isn't that hashtag thing in particular a fascinating development? If you consider, given another five years, kids may well use the hashtag for sarcasm, not realizing how it actually was first functionally used. You know, that will seem to them like old linguistic history, you know, mm -hmm. like um, Middle English. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard people say slash, right? Mm -hmm. I read something about um, like a linguistics professor saying that she thinks it's the rising of a new conjunction, which is actually really strange because that very rarely happens when you have like these parts of speech that are, are new. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, I totally can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I have been struck by in doing like kind of more my daily reading has been how casual and how informal so much writing is. I kind of blame some of the sites that present themselves as feminist sites like the hairpin or the all or jezebel the thing i started calling it was teen girls at a slumber party yeah. before you even start saying anything you proceed it with you guys it reminds me very much of you know a bunch of girls sitting around and being very informal um well i mean i do think it's just a change but i do think you know changes always bring positives and negatives in the case of something like jezebel it's interesting because i mean that's a great site with really good information. And there's nothing that is anti-intellectual about that site, quite the reverse. In general, for people even my age, and I'm middle-aged, there is a kind of a certain element of self-infantilism that goes on. Like we are embarrassed to age, and therefore we try to retain a certain teen-like quality in the way that we speak and present ourselves and that kind of thing. And I think that that actually does have very deep cultural roots. I think that my generation experienced a real disillusionment with power and that kind of thing. The positive thing about that is that we're a little bit more wary than perhaps our forebears were. But the negative thing is that at the same time, we also shy away from responsibility. And we shy away from the responsibility of our own ideas, even. And I really do feel that that's a real part of our culture now is, you know, I mean, as parents, you know how many blogs there are devoted to parents in their 30s and 40s who are terrified of the fact that they actually are the adult now. Right. Previously, there were different cultural models of maturity and models of adulthood that actually people yearned toward. Shoulder pads and Right, exactly. Heels. And the boys all wearing ties. The point of that is that you emulate those who seem to be in power. And so the young wanted to look like those who are in power. Now the peculiar thing is power is really still held demographically by the same age ranges. But the appearance of it, because of the torsion of marketing, it appears that the young are the ones in power, and therefore those who are older than them somehow have to have this strange emulation of the young to try to make themselves feel good and feminine or masculine or whatever it is. And I feel like that is a little pernicious because it disguises where power really is held. And also setting yourself up to always want to be younger than you are is a losing battle because it's not going to happen. Well, there's a trope now, if we just look at pop culture, that the dad characters are desperately trying to be the cool dad and to like the right things and get approval from their children, go a generation back and the father comes home in a suit at the end of the day and everyone wants his affection. 
not the See, other way around. That's exactly right. And both of them obviously have their positives and their negatives. The authoritarian father of yesterday also looks a little bit repugnant to us in some ways. You just wait till your father gets home. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But on the other hand, I feel like there is a real parenting issue with people of my generation and just slightly younger. Because honestly, we want to just walk around in our sneaks and our ironic Atari t-shirts and relive the glory days of 1991. And I think that that is problematic when you're trying to bring up another generation. I mean, sooner or later, someone has to take responsibility. And it's not just about parenting. It's also about things like politics. I was wondering, this is not meant to be a facetious question, though maybe I guess it is a little bit, but I was wondering if you ever wish that you had a feed. I have a terrible uh, memory. And so there are all of these times when I'm just like, oh, shit, I know that I read an article about this three weeks ago, but damned if I can remember a word of it now. It would be great to be able to uh, just immediately, boom, there it is in front of me. I hate the fact that I read so much and then like a week later it's all been scrubbed clean. And I actually do believe that memory extensions of some kind are going to be part of our future. And I know that I'll be really irritated about it because I will have worked so hard to memorize things, whereas people younger than me will just be able to download it all. On the other hand, I already feel the anxiety that can sometimes come from being too connected to the world of my peers all the time and that kind of thing. I mean, it's just very tough, the culture of fame and of self-involvement that is connected with that can sometimes be very onerous. So yeah, I guess um, I would probably get a feed, but then try to manage it. But the problem, as one of you said earlier, is what do you do in a world that's predicated upon these technologies? The thing about the feed in general that makes it so terrifying is that there are elements of it that would be absolutely wonderful to have. That's what makes it an effective story that you've told. You know, I just moved here to North Carolina and I was driving the other day looking for a grocery store. And I thought, man, if I had a feed, it would just tell me where to go. You know, it'd be like, this exit, here's the store you like. You know, and that sounds great. We're getting closer and closer. In a couple right. of years, maybe Google Glasses won't be so goofy and you would just be wearing them in the car and it would be telling you turn-by-turn directions with its bone conduction technology that doesn't use speakers. It just vibrates your brain in the right yeah, way to absolutely. give you some. I mean, it's not impossible at all. Just a few months ago, they finally managed to transfer physical sensation from one rat to another rat through the Internet. Is it in Brave New World that there aren't just talkies for movies? There are also feelies. Right. So, you know, you could have that. On the other hand, as I was pointing out to some teens who are very excited about this and what it could mean for their uh, gaming world, it's also possible for a government to torture someone continuously without causing them any physical harm. You know, all you have to do is record one torture event, and you can totally send someone else into the same place of pain without leaving any mark. So the more invasive that this stuff becomes, all of those old metaphors that have been with us for the whole of human history about the mind is its own place, you can retreat in the mind, you can never shackle my thoughts, all of those metaphors that we've used about the self being safe within us, all of those things change when you are dealing with technologies that actually can neurologically interact with you. I certainly don't want a Facebook poke to actually feel like someone grabbed my arm in the middle of the day if someone wants my attention via social media. Right, exactly. 
You brought up in feed the idea that there are languages that are dead and the sort of play on that idea is that they're programming languages that have gone by the wayside. But it made me think about a conversation I've had recently with a couple of friends who are programmers and view their role in two different ways. There's a side of technology that involves creating technology that's so intuitive that people won't have to understand how it works at all. They'll just have to be as they are and the technology will do the rest for them. That would be maybe the Apple model of doing things. The iPhone exactly, right. should be so intuitive that my two-year-old nephew understands how to find what he wants there without having any clue how it works. It's magic. Exactly, which is real. I mean, as I'm sure you know. And then the flip side of that is the movement of saying coding and programming is a new form of literacy that all children should have in the way that we teach children to read the language that they speak. This is not technology. This is literacy. Do you have any sense of which way we're heading, or is there a way you'd like to see us head in either direction? I feel like the one that is actually going to gain the ascendancy is the first one of those. All the systems that create the life we're used to at this point are so complex that one person cannot master them all. This also ties into all of the kind of the marketing that tries to blind us to how the world actually operates and suggest to us all you really need to think about is yourself. All you need to think about are your needs right now, not just your needs, just the things you want. That is actually dangerous because it naturalizes a world that is profoundly constructed. It makes it appear as if everything is happening the way it should happen, despite the fact that it could be that we're making decisions we're not even aware of. Well, and in the end, it's all pretty much inherently unattainable, right? Our aim is happiness. Joy is at the basis of what it is that we are all seeking. We don't recognize that you can actually up the level of technological consumption, up the level of connectivity, without actually changing the level of pleasure. Sure, uh, you now can remain connected with your friends in ways that you couldn't in, say, 1980 or 1950 or 1900. In each of those periods, you can picture very different ways of connecting with other people. However, um, the sorrows and the joys of those connections merely change form. I don't think we necessarily are actually happier than someone in 1900. We merely have changed the form in which we are unhappy. So that begs the question, where is all of this going and what is driving it? Really what is driving it is the dream that somehow we can become more happy more of the time. There's a beautiful but harrowing moment in Feed where someone's mentioning a lot of things that they would like to do that they haven't experienced yet, and then they have this moment of realization that almost all of them came from the opening credits of a show that was about young, happy people doing young, happy things. So right. our, our perception of what a relationship should look like comes from a romantic comedy, and what an adventure looks like comes from a travel film where they go to an exotic location. All our pictures of happiness come from these external forces. And so I think that in the way we use social media now, where we're asked to document our lives, we're performing that happiness in a way instead of living it. There's That's a, a great point. I, I totally agree. Yeah. There's a show yeah. called Portlandia that sort of likes to mock the sort of young hipster movement. And in sure. one of the scenes, yeah. they're staring at the phone looking at someone's Instagram pictures. And they say, I think they're just cropping out all the sadness. <laughs> right. And which, I mean, all of us can guiltily admit, I think, those of us who use Facebook, those times when we have specifically found ways to do the sort of the humble brag about what a great time we're having, 
specifically because we almost feel like until we've recorded it and others see us having that good time, it has not truly happened to us yet. Picks or it didn't happen, as the kids right, say. Right, exactly. What we need to do is start looking at the question of happiness itself and not all of the objects that are supposed to take us there. And then we start to see in study after study that um, all of the things that make us happiest tend to be banal and obvious things that people have been doing for the whole of human history. Eating with other people, dancing with other people, listening to music, a strong sense of community, rather than people saying, well, look, I'm really so much happier because I have a bread maker than, uh, than before I had a bread maker. Thanks again to M.T. Anderson and Megan Murphy-Gill for introducing us to his book, Feed, and joining us for the conversation. Now it's time for homework. Greta? My homework is for you guys to call and leave us voicemails. Yes, do it. I know it's weird recording yourself into the ether like that, but we love hearing from you. And it's totally okay if you accidentally, like, word vomit while talking or whatever and want to restart a sentence. So this week, we want to know what you're hoping for from the final episodes of Breaking Bad. Must Walt die? Do you want him to redeem himself? Is that even possible? Call us and tell us. 312-600-5638. And seriously, even if you get at the point where you have to just hang up and regroup, it's okay. Just call us back. Safe space, guys. What about you, Trisha? What's your assignment for us this week? My homework is a catch-up assignment, one that I gave a few episodes back but is now especially important. I want you guys to read The Girls of Atomic City, the untold story of the women who helped win World War II. This is a crazy good story, and it's true. It's about women living and working in a secret government-run city who, without knowing what their assembly line spit out at the end, helped to build the first atomic bombs. We'll interview the book's author, Denise Kiernan, soon. So think of this as like a gracious extension we're giving you on a previous assignment. (laughs) You can find links to all your homework and assign us some at nerdatpodcast.com. That's it for today. Thanks again to Audie Cornish, M.T. Anderson, and Megan Murphy-Gill. And to our intern, Claire. She's working hard to teach her parrot to say Condoleezza Rice. A noble pursuit. Thanks for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And throw us a few stars if you're feeling generous. B.J. Lederman did not compose our theme. But if he did, I'd make it my ringtone, too. You know what my ringtone is? No, what is it, Trisha? The sound of the TARDIS. This is Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.